welcome to episode number two of the Screaming Beaver podcast. I'm your host, Jason Jackson. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my wife, Deb Jackson, your Norwex independent consultant. Norwex is best known for their superior microfiber cloths, and they are committed to improving quality of life by radically reducing chemicals in your home. If you'd like to keep your house clean without all the nasty chemicals, join Deb's Facebook group at Pampered Home and Body, all one word, in the Facebook search bar, or check out the link in the show notes below. Our guest on the podcast this week is Dr. Lisa McKinnon. Lisa is a medical doctor who has just recently moved back to the area with her husband Mike and their son Noah. We focus on all the interesting jobs she has held on her way to becoming a PhD. Lisa played university rugby, which opened the doors to her working as a dive master, a smoke jumper, and for right to play in Africa. I hope you enjoy this interview. Hello, Lisa Mack. Thank you for uh, for coming on the podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me. How are you doing tonight? I'm feeling all right. Thank you. Good, good. Um, so I guess we'll jump right into things. Um, what was your first job uh, in Vancouver Hill? Do you remember that back when you were? <laughs> I do, I do. I know which job you're, you're hinting at. I actually had a paper route prior to that. So my first, first job actually was a paper route, okay. which I think I did get from Peter Barton possibly. Ah, uh, you got the, I, the I Barton. Up, yes, I got part of that route. And... Did uh, Mr. Barton ever have to go and do your papers for you? Or? No, my mom possibly had to do my papers on a few rough mornings, but for the most part, I did my own papers. Good, good. And I actually covered Peter's papers every once in a while. And Yeah, I know uh, Mr. Barton did quite a few of Peter's. Uh, Peter's paper route and probably Stephen and David's as well. Oh yeah, that's right. They had them too. Yeah, it was yeah. the family uh, the family paper route. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was the first job um, and then I did do some work at my dad's um, at Skyheesh Industries when that was up and running. I thought I did some sweeping I think there yeah. and some other, I got to do some soldering which is very fun. Oh, I like cool. to do that. Um, yeah, and then I graduated up to uh, the job that you got me at Home Hardware. At Home Hardware, a farmer supply company. That's right. Uh, that's right. Stocking shelves. Beverly every was, Tuesday evening. <laughs> Beverly was quite the uh, the quite the boss. Yes, yeah, she um, you know I I kind of liked her in a way, but she uh, I think she purposely changed her mind about how she wanted things done every Tuesday night. Yes, yes, absolutely. So as soon as you you, you thought you got it right and you. No, you got to take all your bins to the shelf and then unload them. Yes, no, 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 yeah. no, no. You got to take one bin at a time and then unload them. And then you've got, no. Yeah. So it was, um, it was a good learning experience in, yeah. in patience. Um, yes, I agree. Yes. I, yes. uh, I was there for three years. And <clears throat> I don't know how you did that. Yeah. Uh, things were, things were odd at times. I, uh, I went in one night at two in the morning and uh, Beverly decided that she needed three parking spots in front of the store instead of two. So she got me in on a Sunday evening at uh, like two in the morning. What's the statute of limitations on? Uh... I don't know. <laughs> Why was she calling you at two in the morning? That seems no, she, a little bit bizarre. She, she rented a grinder oh uh, like a, with a wire brush on it. And okay. she, uh, she wanted me to grind the parking lines off, off. the street. And then she was going to repaint her own lines so that she could put three cars in front of the store instead of in the uh, middle of the night in the middle of the night because it was slightly illegal and uh (laughs) that was her (laughs) 
Our chances of getting caught were uh, were slim to none. I think of that. I was, she was she was watching for the cops as I was. Uh, oh my god! Was so she, okay. Yeah. And she felt that that would improve flow well, into the store. I think or? so. Yeah. Um, yeah. My other good story from Farmer <clears throat> Supply was uh, she would send me down to the convenience store or the grocery store beside the post office, mm-hmm. and to get, yeah, to get a diet coke. So I I went back. It was a hot day in the summer, and I thought it'd be a good idea to put the diet coke in the paint shaker. So I shook it up in the paint shaker, and I came in, and I, I gave it to her, and she gave me crap for uh, for taking so long to run down to the store, and I said, oh, it was really busy, and anyway, I was waiting around, hoping she would open it, and she mm-hmm. sent me to the back to do something. I just got around the corner, and I hear, Jason! <laughs> and I go running up to the front, and there's Diet Coke everywhere. And, um, like all you're a brave soul to do that. Wow. On the ceiling, <laughs> all over the, the microwaves and the coffee machines. I was there till like 10 o'clock at night cleaning, cleaning all, it up. But it was worth it. Yeah. yeah. Well, to be fair, you could... You could get away with some things that the rest of us couldn't because she did really like you. I remember she told me once that um, we were destined to be together. I just had some wild seeds to sow first. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's. I think that's why she hired me. I thought she she thought she was doing you a favor. Oh well. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yes. So you probably don't remember this, but the first time I ever met you, mm-hmm. we were working at Phillips. Uh, strawberry farm, Mr. Phillips Strawberry Farm. Okay, I do remember picking strawberries. That's yep. another job I've had. Another that's right. job we we had we shared together, and right, uh, that's right. Yeah, and good times there. Hard work on your knees. Uh, yes, picking strawberries, but it was it was worth it. I had to pick enough strawberries to go to horse camp to Sammy Petzl's horse camp. Oh, I see. So that's... I think it was like I want to say four hundred dollars, maybe. So it was a lot of strawberry picking to get. Yes, I bet you that would be to get there. To get there, yeah. I I actually don't remember meeting you. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bad memory. I also don't remember. You said I pushed you playing soccer once into the ditch by VCI, like behind Bovidan's house. And oh. I pushed you in it apparently and said, don't get up or I'll kill you. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> I remember you yeah. telling me that. I'm like, did I really do that? I mean, I was competitive, but I don't remember being yeah. that competitive. But um, it's possible. Anyway, we'll fast forward through uh, Pleasant Many Corners and, and VCI because yeah. uh, I think Hamish and I... Uh, Covered that, covered that on the previous podcast, mm-hmm, and uh, your your upbringing would be similar to uh, to Hamish and myself. You, right. You're the same age as Hamish, right? Yep, I believe so. Time. We're both probably. I don't know. I'm 78, so I'm assuming he's. Yeah, yeah, I think so. 78 too. Uh, so after high school, where'd you uh, where'd you take off to? Yeah, so after high school, I was a little bit still lost. I think like a lot of people, didn't really know what I wanted to do schooling wise. Knew I wanted to go to university, and I just kind of. Followed the easiest path, really. Ended up at Carleton, um, like I mentioned. We did, I did business administration there, or public administration. And um, yeah, I had a, had a tough year my first year in university. Just uh, like I said, I had my ACL repaired. Um, I had Torrit playing rugby, partially playing basketball and partially skiing. And um, yeah, just had a hard time getting around. Didn't love, love the campus. It was a rough year. and didn't love my courses. So I was really lucky. My mom, actually, my mom has has guided and saved me in many things in my life. And um, I was trying to transfer to Queens. And because I wasn't really getting to class, because usually I was a pretty good student actually in high school, and I uh, wasn't, and they had like online lecture stuff you could watch, but I wasn't that good at doing that either because I was, you know, doing other things, boxing and whatever. Um, so yeah, I didn't do that great. So then I wanted to transfer to Queens and they actually said no because my okay. marks weren't good enough. And my mom called called them up and gave them <laughs> shit, basically. Called them up and said, what do you mean? You're not going to take my daughter. Her high school marks are great. And uh, she's a good student. And um, 
I don't know. I don't know what she did or what she said. Actually, I don't think I was there at the time. But the lady said, all right, all right, fine. We'll take her. Oh, good. Um, good and Linda. that lady actually didn't really have the authority, I guess, to do that. But because she uh, she said they'd take me, they did. So then I transferred to Queen's. And I was um, I actually was on academic probation, if you could believe it. Um, being a doctor now, it seems like it yeah. seems like a rough start. But anyway, I was on academic probation. And... Um, which was kind of good because I was only I could only take so many courses. Actually, I could only take I want to say like three and a half or four credits at a okay. time, which meant that I, it was going to be harder to graduate on time. So, um, but then I ended up because I had a bit of free time, I started playing rugby there. So I was already playing rugby for the Ottawa Irish, and I decided to try out for Queens um, okay. the varsity team. Which, you know, I was a I was a reasonable player as having Trevor Allen as our uh, as our coach. I, yeah. was, I was I was a okay player for just only playing a few years, but I didn't actually think I'd get on and. I, and I did. I did actually. I graduated from the seconds team to the first and had four amazing years at Queen's predominantly because I was playing rugby. It was it was actually pretty fantastic. So I was really lucky that way and eventually got up to taking a full course load and then actually took extra courses every summer to graduate on time. Oh, good. But that did, uh, yeah, it made my next steps a little bit more tricky. So then I had lots of things to make up before I could even think about getting into medical school. Yeah. So That's, yeah. What position did you play in rugby? I started off actually because I think Trevor had this theory that if you were a good guard in basketball, which I was an RA guard, that you would make a good scrum half. Yes. So I started at scrum half and Nikki actually, yeah. Nikki Cernax was my fly half and it was it was a hell of a time actually. And Janice was in the, I think her and Melissa Burns, I, wanted, I think were in the second row. Like yeah. Um, it, was a, it was a fun team. It was, it was a lot of fun actually. So I started off at scrum half. Uh, terrible hands. I had terrible hands. Uh, <laughs> it was a rough ride. And then Trevor decided that I should play for the Ottawa Irish. So I, I don't know. I packed up and drove all the way to Ottawa. Yeah. In this, uh, I had this old uh, Cutlass Cutlass Sierra that leaked oil like a sieve. Oh my god. And so I'd have to stop like a million times, put oil in it. But anyway, so I made it to Ottawa and started practicing with the Irish, and they were a lot of fun. And actually, I was playing with Sherry Sparling who was uh, captain of Canada at the time. Oh, neat. Or at least captain of the Ontario team. And her actually her partner was um, captain of the Quebec team. So anyway, so she used a scrum half. So clearly I was not going to be playing scrum half there. Yes, but yeah. anyway, she she took a lot of time to teach me. My hands got better. And um, I did play scrum with a really another good fly half um, on the seconds team, which I really, really enjoyed. But then somehow randomly one game, uh, we didn't have a hook. First team didn't oh. have a hook. And I ended up getting subbed in for hook, which actually typically doesn't happen because you need to be pretty experienced. Yeah. yeah, they don't really sub in a non-experienced person in the front row because if you go down, it's dangerous. So I ended up playing as hook, which was really random. And because, I don't know if it's because I played soccer or whatever, I had a really good hook on the ball. So then that was that. Was that. that kind of cemented that position. And I hooked for the seconds for many moons. Uh, again, I wasn't a very good throw, so my lineups were, were all right. Um, so when I went to Queens, um, I kind of said, well, you know, I, I play scrum half, but now I've been playing hook and they said, well, we have a scrum and so try for hook and there I did. So I started for Queens for four, well, three years as hook. And then randomly, if you could believe it, I got bumped into prop. Oh, really? And my last, I want to say my last year, if not two, I propped. Okay. Yeah, we had a really small front row. Everybody was my height. I think my, my hook actually was 5'1". I'm a whole 5'2", maybe tie 5'2 and a half on a good day. And we were a really low front row, and that actually played to our advantage hugely because we could really get under and drive people yeah. back. And we, I remember playing Mac, and uh, the ref actually came up to me and said, because I was uh, <clears throat> one of the captains, and he said, you know, this this their pack outweighs you by about 300 <laughs> pounds. He's like, yeah. I don't understand how you guys are winning all these balls, but actually because I hooked... 
and that's kind of illegal, but because I was uh, loose head prop, I could actually hook the ball if the hook, our hook missed it. Okay. So we won a lot of balls. And then after it got in the channel, I could kind of steal it because I could still kind of hold up and, and hook back if yeah. I could get my foot on it. So we, uh, it worked out really, really well. So then I, yeah, I propped. My neck is paying for it yeah. these days. Oh, absolutely. But uh, it was a lot of fun. I probably should have, if I would have been a winger, I probably would still be playing. But yeah, yeah, that many years in the pack, I think. I actually, when I went to Ireland for medical school, <clears throat> I did play for the Irish, actually. Well, for the women's team. Oh, nice. Um, for Limerick for uh, for two years. Good. Yeah, yeah which it was very different because they, they have non-contested scrums, okay. which is very bizarre for yeah. that level of rugby. Um, and it was actually really interesting because in um, Canada, typically we're not always at the top you know, yeah. worldwide and in, in like world class in sport. And when I went to Ireland, it was actually pretty fantastic to see what I, the experience that I'd had in rugby and then to go to Ireland. And <clears throat> I mean, their women's team have done very well over the last two years. So yeah. not to put them down, but the quality of rugby that I was playing was not what they were playing. Were you better or worse? Oh, we were much better. Oh, really? oh yeah. Like they were yeah. uncontested scrums. Like if I stepped over a rock that was uncontested and picked the ball and went, I'd be slaughtered. Oh, so my, okay. my coach actually started with Jill Burke, who actually plays for the women now. Um, she's like, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> she's <laughs> like, if, I'm like, it's an uncontested ball. It's a break. She's like, yeah, but no one's going to go with you. So yeah. just, just, just form the rock or wait for someone else to form the rock and just leave the ball. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is like, you know, forwards don't get to pick up balls and run just like that. So it was really, it was really cool to yeah. see that actually the Canadian women's rugby is, uh, is really high quality rugby. Yeah. We had a, we had a yeah. similar <clears throat> uh, rugby experience. I started with uh, Andrew Lawford was our first rugby Oh, coach. yes, yes. Of course. Yeah, so That's I was right. I was fly half with uh, Andrew because uh, I could kick the ball, and then so uh, he actually played with you guys. No, Andrew was our he, coach. He was your coach. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Andrew was yeah. our coach, and then uh, when Trevor came along the following year, uh, right. I moved to scrum half, oh, and yeah, then nice. Trevor recruited me for the Irish, and I went there, and I was a uh, loose slide flanker. Oh, jealous! And uh, yeah, you get to hit people. That's a really good position. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, things were going well there. I was playing on the second team, and then I broke my leg playing uh, soccer. I broke hmm. my leg in four places, and that was the end of my How rugby. Did I miss that? Yeah, I have. I I showed up for a game, first game of the the year, and uh, our goalie had moved on, and they would put someone else in nets, and he was horrible. Um, <laughs> You're not going to name any names. <laughs> not going to name any names, <laughs> but, but he was not good. Uh -oh. So I went over to our coach, uh, who I think was his brother, and told him that uh, I could play nets. And uh, he says, really, Jackson, you play nets? I'm like, well, mm -hmm. I got to be better than the other guys. So uh, we played. Uh, I played two games of nets. And on the third game, I went out to pick up a ball. And uh, just as a great big forward was coming in to kick it, and he missed the ball and kicked me right in the leg. And uh, broke my tibia, fibia in four places. So I ended up with a in the hospital with a rod in my leg, and uh, that was the end of uh, down the tibia. I uh, yeah. 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 How did you? So you broke both of them in four places? Well, four, no, four, four total. breaks in total. Yeah, wow. Four breaks in total. So. So it was like a spiral fracture. Then it fractured at the bottom, and then again at the top. Uh wow. no, it was straight through. They were straight through. Oh. Um wow. yeah. So anyways, that was the end of my rugby career. I, <laughs> I never went yeah. back to rugby and it was put the almost the final nail in my my soccer career as well. I, I took, like, Do you still have the rod in place? Yeah, yeah, I still got the rod in place. You're not taking it out. And well, that's what the, the doctor said. He, he told me they'd never successfully taken the rod out of uh, someone's leg. And I said, really? Well, how many unsuccessful attempts did you have? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't want to be one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I guess tibia would be different than femur, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was oh uh, that was my uh, rugby. Yeah, you don't want to break that leg again. Then. No, mm -hmm. no. So uh, what did you yeah. do after Queens? Uh, 
Yikes. Yeah. After Queens, it gets complicated. So then, um, when I was at playing rugby, actually, I, you know, playing front row, you're injured a lot of the time, not officially injured, but just, so I had uh, started seeing this lady who's a massage therapist, chiropractor kind of thing. And as we were talking over my many sessions, I was trying to decide what to do next. Cause initially when I went to Queens, I wanted to do physical, I'd be a physical therapist and, or do physiotherapy. And, um, I started doing a lot of shadowing and physio and, you know, no disrespect to physio is good for them, but there was a lot of repetitive stuff. People were never really doing their exercises. Some were getting better, but a lot of them really weren't. A lot of the complaints were kind of, you know, sort of generic complaints. There were some really cool cases that I saw too. Uh, like I said, I saw this girl that fell out of a, a golf court cart. She wasn't actually going that fast, maybe 30 or 40 kilometers per hour. Um, but I think she was in the passenger seat and someone turned really quick and she fell out and just the way she hit her head, she actually like lost her sense of smell. She was like, had oh. all this like vertigo, like really interesting case, like just from one small injury. So I kind of like that, but the rest I was like, mm, this isn't for me. This is a bit too boring. So as I was going along, I was trying to figure out what to do. And actually at that time, um, in order to, to go into, to be a physio, you kind of, you had to have a full degree. Like they kept changing the requirements. You had a few more university courses and then you had to have a full degree. So by the time I got through all that, I actually decided I was going to go for a cardiovascular tech program. So this way I could still be in the hospital, work in the hospital, like more of a hospital setting, uh, but just need sort of a college degree. And she, the lady that I was working with kind of recommended this. She said, actually, why don't you do echocardiography? And when I looked into that, how to get in, cause she's like, that's nice. You know, you're doing ultrasounds on people and you can do, you know, for um, fetal ultrasounds, like prenatal ones. You know, she's like, it's a good environment. Like people are usually healthy or whatever for a lot of it. And it's kind of nice. So I figured, oh yeah, I'll give that a try. Um, but they, I had to take a stepping stone course to get into that. So I did, uh, I did this course as a cardiovascular tech and loved it. And like I said, I did all the ECGs and stress tests, the whole thing monitors. It was all really interesting. Like cardiac physiology is super, super interesting. Like if you read an ECG, like it looks like a bunch of squiggles and lines, yeah. but it's actually really cool. And it's really cool how the signal gets transmitted and how it gets picked up and the different deflections of what it means. So I really like that. But when I was doing my, I actually drove, this was all the way at McMaster at Mohawk College. And then I decided because I wanted to come back this kind of way that I would do my elective piece at KGH because I was, you know, I went to Queens and I really liked Kingston. And so I was driving back and forth through traffic in Toronto uh, every week to do my elective. And, um, anyway, so as I was doing that, I, I started working shifts. Basically the lady that I was working with was like, Oh yeah, you're doing pretty good in your course. How about you just start working here? Which you're not really supposed to do, but anyway. yeah. so anyways, I started working and just realized that, you know, a lot of this stuff that you do, you hand over to somebody that is a resident, like I've just been, and they have no idea what they're looking at. And I remember handing over an ECG to somebody that, uh, was a new resident, I think. And I was like, okay, this is a really important ECG. You should look at this. And they kind of looked at me and said, oh, yeah, that looks pretty good. And I'm like, no, no, actually. <laughs> this is a patient that's supposed to be paced. And those big, big spikes you see are pacemaker spikes. And the fact there's nothing after the spike means the pacemaker's not doing anything. Oh. So this is pretty important. You need to look at it again. Yeah. And they were like, oh, okay, really? And same for my treadmills. Like I remember treadmilling someone who had obvious, you know, ischemia when they were on the treadmill and someone who was a high risk for, for cardiac, for having a heart attack. And I remember showing it to cardiologists and they're like, oh yeah, they can go home. And I was like, hmm. they really, really, really shouldn't go home. So anyway, after all that, I decided I wanted to do medical school Good. Um, as opposed. So I had done my cardiovascular tech course and I was going to go into echo and I'd actually got accepted and I, and I had done some shadowing and was falling asleep in the dark room watching these images. Um, so then I decided I wanted to do medicine after all that. And so then I basically I was going to pack up and move out West because if you're in Ontario, uh, they take, they don't, they don't give you any preference 
from being from Ontario. So especially Queens and Queens doesn't take you any preference for being a Queens grad or at least not at the time. Okay. So it's really, really hard to get in, especially at Queens. Yeah. And uh, if you, but if you lived at West and you were a resident there, they take 80% of their applicants from the province. Oh, good. Yeah. And actually Ontario, or at least Queens, keeps spots open for every province. So you're really at a disadvantage for being okay. here. So I figured, you know what, I'll pack up and go out West. But then randomly I ended up um, applying for another position that happened to just be coming available with Commonwealth Games Canada. So like I was mentioning, when you play rugby for, for varsity rugby, if you're a varsity member and you are the dean's list, you get um, an academic all-Canadian recognition. And then that gives you the ability to apply for a few of these programs. So Commonwealth Games actually was recruiting a few athletes. Didn't matter your background, really. As long as you had this this recognition and you could apply to do some sports development, basically, in, in one of their, any of their programs that were looking for, for project managers. And the projects that were coming up were some in the Caribbean and some in Africa. And like I said, my dad's an aerospace engineer and had done a lot of work in Africa, mostly in Libya, but a few other places in Africa. And I was really interested in that. So... I decided to apply and I figured, you know, they only take nine from across Canada, so unlikely that I'll get it, but um, I'll try it anyway. And so I ended up getting into Echo and then getting an offer to go on this this internship, basically. It was kind of unpaid, but they just sort of paid for you to get there. And um, because I got that opportunity, I figured I would go. So I got offered a spot to go to the Turks and Caicos to Grand Turk. And like I talked about, I, I really wanted to go to Africa and I think out of the 10 of us, seven of us went to Africa, like in really cool places. Like, um, but I unfortunately ended up being one of the three that went to the Caribbean and I say, I say, unfortunately, 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 (laughs) in hindsight, it wasn't that unfortunate, but, and like I said, my dad randomly had been, or my parents had been to the Turks and Caicos and had been to Grand Turk randomly. And my dad actually had built the tower there. So the aerospace tower was built by my dad. So they convinced me actually to go because initially I was thinking maybe I wouldn't. And so that was an eight month, like I said, internship where they gave you a stipend of like, I think it was like eight grand that you got for the eight months. And then they, yeah, that was enough to cover your flight and your housing and whatever so then i ended up packing up and going to the caribbean that's pretty cool i i think you made the right choice uh, I, it, well <laughs> now since i met my husband there i'd yeah. say we pro- i probably did all right it was interesting because it was this tiny little island about three thousand people grand turk and there's probably i mean it's owned by the british and so there is an expat community there but there's probably only about 10 or 15 caucasian people on the island okay. so I remember meeting, and they're still there, actually. They run Manta House, a hotel there, but uh, Tanya and Katya, there's girls from Toronto, and they were pretty much the only Canadians on the island except for one other girl, Rebecca Kane, that was working for the government. So, yeah, I was pretty much this only lonely white teenager on this island of 3,000 people, and I remember being there my first week and being so lonely. Like, I didn't know anybody, and um, my... the. Basically, the lady that was taking care of me picked me, <laughs> picked me up and thought she'd do me a favor. So she picked me up and she drove me to the main street, which is where all the expats hang out. And she basically dumped me at a bar, which is called the Water's Edge, actually, which doesn't fully exist anymore. And she said, okay, go meet some people. See, see you later. Yeah. So then that's pretty much how it happened. So I ended up meeting um, the governor there of the island and a number of other people and actually a house out for the governor uh, Multiple, multiple times. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was good. And then I, well, it was good for the, yeah, it was good. It was nice to meet all these people. But I think the first or second week that I was there, Hurricane, I think Isabella was coming. It was Isabella. And so they were already talking about what to do or yeah. if she showed up, which she never fully did. So that was good. Okay. But uh, yeah, so it was, it was a really cool island. I did a lot. And that's where my diving kind of started. I had actually worked on a cruise ship just before that uh, for Carnival. And I had done my first diving there in Mexico, but then I ended up doing a bunch of diving in Grand Turk. 
And then I met this guy from the East Coast. He actually plays in a band, Dwayne. He's a really cool guy. And he was coming to a few things that I was doing because I was doing a bunch of sports development. So I had started like a boxing class and I was doing aerobics class for ladies. And he wanted to come to some of my classes. And then as a thanks, he wanted to take me diving. So I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, I'm busy. Like I'm, you know, you're running this whole program. And, uh, but anyway, so he came knocking on my door early on a Sunday morning and I was like, all right, well, the water looks nice. Let's go dive. Why not? Anyway, it turned out that Mike was our dive master. So my husband, now Mike, who I guess knew I was coming apparently and actually was on another boat, but had convinced his boss to switch to the boat that I was on. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I met Mike, I think that like I said, I think that was in the like fall. Um, and then never really saw him again after that. We dove for a little bit and then, uh, never really saw him again. And I actually was with someone at the time and then that sort of ended and I, on, on Valentine's um, in 2000, and I should know this for, uh, a whole bunch of lonely hearts ended, <laughs> ended up at a bar <laughs> just across from the water's edge, actually the salt raker. Um, and island guys are really perceptive, so I actually was engaged at the time, and I had taken my engagement ring off, and so the island guys oh. were very quick to pick that up, and they were sort of circling uh, for most of the night, so I got lots of glasses of red wine handed to me, <laughs> lots and lots. And then somewhere in that night, um, I ended up meeting Mike, and... And the rest is history. And the re- well, yeah, kind of, <laughs> yeah. He thought I was pretty interesting, I guess. And then, um, yeah, the night's a bit of a blur after that. Oh. But yeah, so then I end up kind of briefly meeting him and then we met again um, diving. And then that's, yeah, the rest was sort of history after that. So we decided to stay on the island for another year and then help run the dive company that Mike was Mike was working with at the cool. time, Blue Water Divers, and had many, many cool diving experiences. Yeah. Uh, many, yeah. Like yeah. how old are the wrecks that you guys are uh, diving to? Well, the Endymion uh, is a wreck off of Salt Key. So it's a bit of a ways to go, but it's, yeah, it's over 100 years old. There's there's quite a bit of old pirate wrecks there too. Oh, really? The actual population of Grand Turk um, were were slaves, like from a slave ship that crashed on the reef. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so all the islands are, sur- are surrounded by this crazy 8,000 foot drop reef basically so the reef is not that far out uh, for some of the islands it's only about a kilometer out and uh, and then after that's an 8,000 foot drop so. really 8, yeah yeah and then there's lots of reefs sort of between the islands so between say Grand Turk and South Caicos or even Gibbs Key uh, so if you don't know where you're going you're you're going to run into trouble on your boat so there's been quite a few slave ships and that kind of thing and some are still around and some are pretty much not a whole lot left of them so yeah. if you find something that's on the seafloor, are you allowed to take it or do you have to leave it there? What's the deal with uh, that? It's usually discouraged. Um, and most of Grand Turk is, is, you know, at least on, I guess that's the south side of the island. Uh, most of it's protected. So that's also a protected park, at least fish-wise. So I guess it's pretty, you know, it's discouraged that you touch things. And there is a, you know, they've got a really nice museum there and they're usually collecting artifacts and doing that kind of thing. So I okay. guess the, the, the nice thing to do would be to donate it to the, uh, to the museum. But I suppose finders keepers if you did really find yeah. something okay. cool. But There's no yeah. laws against it though? Uh, no, I guess. I, not that I would know of. No, 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 no. Maybe officially there is, but no. And we, but as divers, we usually don't touch. What's the, what's the deepest dive you've ever done? Uh, probably about 160 to 180 feet. Okay. Yeah, usually usually we do a lot less than that. Yeah. Usually 120 is kind of our max. Mike and I have been down together. Um, yeah, about 100, 150 feet, I'd say. And you don't stay down, down there very long. And then it's a gradual backup. But yeah, when we first started doing a lot of dives together, we kind of explore with a few things. Yeah. Deeper dives and stuff. And then as, like I said, Mike was doing his dive master there. And as we sort of did a bit more diving together and then with other groups, we'd kind of just 
you know, switch gear underwater and do all kinds of like random things. Just, okay. just, just, for, just, just for, for just for fun. Just for giggles, kicks. Eh? Yeah. Well, it's good. It keeps you familiar with your gear and then you're, you're a lot more comfortable if something does go wrong, which has happened because when I was doing my rescue diver, you have to explain to some, someone who's panicking underwater and my boss at the time, uh, so Mitch Rowling, who is still the owner of Blue Water Divers, uh, was my instructor and he was showing us buddy breathing and took us down sort of in the afternoon with tanks that had already been used on a dive. So they were already sort of at like 500 PSI. And we were doing buddy breathing uh, and we're trying to explain it. So I think it was my my turn, sort of my demo. And I was buddy breathing. And then I ended up getting my rig back and it was empty. Okay. Um, so it was kind of, you can feel when your rig gets empty, it kind of gets a little harder to breathe. But And it was sort of getting there, but then all of a sudden it was like Gone. empty. Yeah, to the point where I couldn't even get my breath. So I hadn't, I had already blown out all my air because I'd given my rig away. And then when I got it back, I actually didn't have really enough to suck in and when yeah. I did it was just water and of course Mitch is kind of oblivious to what's going on but Mike thankfully Mike and I had dove a lot together and we were quite good at picking up each other's non-verbal communication obviously underwater um, but even signals and he just saw my face I guess when I got the rag back and I was just about to bolt I was we were only about 10 feet I'd say from the surface but I was just about to bolt to the surface and he automatically gave me his rag oh, okay. yeah so I didn't have to go too far but it was a really interesting you know it was a good experience and that that's what it feels like like when yeah. you're completely yeah and it's not nice so if that yeah. had, if that had happened at 120 and you bolted to the top like, oh god you'd be dead yeah oh you'd be oh, dead you, have, you get the bends oh yeah okay oh yeah oh I yeah mean, it depends how long you've been down there but yes yeah i mean i guess free divers have have a way of of doing that but and it you the nitrogen builds up in your system as the longer that you're down but I mean, to get down there, obviously, yeah. it usually takes a bit of time. But yeah, you you probably get the vents. Now, is there a decompression chamber in, on... in Grand Turk? Oh gosh, no. Oh no, eh? Oh no, so... no, no. I mean, typically, I guess we didn't then because we were a little less responsible. But now, whenever we most of our vacations now are dive vacations. Okay. Uh, so the last one we were on, we went to Tahiti. All right. To Bora Bora, well, to a number of the islands, but um, Rangaroa and Bora Bora were the two main ones. And we went to Roatan and a few others. Now in Hawaii, we went back and did a bunch of diving. Now we always get Dan insurance. So Dan insurance is your dive insurance that they will airlift you to an air, to a decompression chamber if okay. you need to go. Yeah. But no, Grand Turk. The, the closest one would be Miami. Okay. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to have to no. that <laughs> if you... No, especially considering you need to kind of get to altitude, which would put you at way more risk. Yeah, that would be just bad. It would be bad all around. Have you have you dived around here? Like, have you gone to the St. Lawrence or at no. your cottage? Or... I should. I should because there's lots of sunglasses and an oar and yeah. probably a boat. <laughs> there's a number of things. Oh my god, my cottage is like it's pretty deep though. Uh, but I haven't. I'm actually a pretty spoiled uh, warm water diver. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I haven't done any cold water diving. I certainly haven't done any dry suit diving, which. Has been on our to-do list, but it just doesn't really interest me as much. Yeah. Um, we're sort of micro divers now. Like, obviously, we like seeing big things, and we did specifically go to Rangaroa to see tiger sharks. But now we, I really appreciate looking at the smaller things. So when I'm going places, I used to like, I like really nice corals and even soft sponges and all the little things that yeah. arrow crabs and all the cool stuff you find in crevices. So I'm not too keen on going into stark murky water with not a lot to see <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> except freezing my ass off. And I don't, I don't do well. Mike does much better without having to wear a suit. I could be in a five mil. Like I actually started diving in a five mil in Hawaii after I was doing my, my dive master course. Like, cause you're diving so much every day in so many dives that you just start to get really cold at yeah. the end of dives. So I don't do well in cold water. I don't think. Yeah. No, I should explore it more, but so, no, I like the warm water. Okay. So after, yeah. uh, after, 
Grand Turks, where did you head off to yeah, then? Yeah, so after Grand Turk, Mike Mike came back. So Mike's originally from Holland, so he came back to Canada with me. And then we tried to figure out what was the next best thing to do. And now I felt it was time to get back on track to getting to into medicine since yeah. I decided I want to do that. So I've been doing some studying for my MCATs when I was in the Caribbean, but that's kind of hard to do. There's lots of distractions. So we got back here and actually I think we moved back or Mike got back here with me in October. I'd been doing some supply teaching actually at BCI oh, for yeah. a couple of months, <laughs> which was interesting. It was actually really easy because I just write my name on the board and people would go, oh, are you Mrs. McKinnon's daughter? And I'm like, <laughs> Like, yep, they're like, okay. And they'd all sit up really proper and not say boo. So it was pretty, it was pretty easy, actually. Easy-ish as, as, as a supply teacher can be. But yeah, so then on Halloween, basically, we packed up and drove out west. Okay. In 2006. And then I started working as a cardiovascular tech there, basically just to pay the bills. And then I ended up doing, to get into medical school, I had to get up my GPA. And actually, um, I think because of my weird thing at Queens where I wasn't necessarily a full-time student the whole time and they really want four years of full-time, I needed another full-time year really to be considered. So then I ended up doing a year at UFC, which was crazy. Um, so I ended up working as a tech all night. Basically, I had a point eight, which means you work eight out of 10 shifts. And then I went to school all day. So oh, I geez. basically just went from – and I was working kind of away from the college, the, the university. So if I, I did some shifts at Foothills, which is right next door, but I was actually coming from Rocky View. So a lot of driving back and forth. Yeah, so I kind of get off shift. I do the night shift from 11 at night to 7 in the morning and then run to the university and then do my courses and then try to get a little bit of work done in between and then go back to work basically. What about sleep? Did you, Without did sleep. You sleep, yeah. Yeah, so not a lot of sleep that year. It was a long year, but I did enough um, – I got through it enough to get my GPA up. And then I, apl I actually applied to the University of Calgary, I believe. A few Canadians, not a lot of Canadian schools. But then I randomly was working with a tech who was from Ireland and loved it. And that's all she could talk about. She was really cool. And I was working with a cardiologist who was, his background was Chinese, but he'd married an Irish woman. And he had, they'd sent all their kids, I think they had like six of them, and sent them all to medical school in Ireland. And they raved about it. And I was oh. like, okay, well, you know what? Why not? It's Mike's, you know, Mike's mom's in Holland. It would be good. He could go back and forth and see her. He doesn't see her a lot. And uh, I thought it'd be cool. And I'd already, you know, I'd been to Queens. Um, I'd kind of been to McMaster, sort of, at Mohawk. And then I'd been to Calgary. And, you know, no offense to Canadian cities. They're all really cool. But I was like, I don't really feel like doing another four years of didactic learning in Canada. Like, even if I did get in, which would which would have made my life easier, I actually want an international experience and Ireland, or at least the University of Limerick, was sort of a sister university in a sense to McMaster. So they had taken on the complete problem-based learning. So it, basically it was a roundtable discussion for most of your learning with, you know, six or seven students and a, and a doctor and you just work through cases and that's how you learned. And everything was surrounded by that case. Okay. And then that week your anatomy lab and all your lectures would be about that case and then you'd move on to next. And that sounded way more interesting to me than sitting in a didactic big lecture hall with, you know, three, four or five hundred other people and just having people talk to you all day or talk at you so yeah, yeah so I was like you know what, what whatever I'll, I'll apply I'm sure I won't get in and um and I did so I got an interview in Toronto so I had to fly back to Toronto and it was like a really random interview where basically you got this problem um about you were someone you were head of a factory and something wasn't going well and someone wasn't agreeing like wasn't in agreement with what was happening or something wasn't going well at the the factory and you had to basically stand up and do a whiteboard explanation of how you would fix it and okay. what that would look like and a few other things and then of course we talked about rugby and the guy was you know all about rugby in Ireland and as soon as they found out I might play rugby in Ireland that that certainly seemed to tip things in my favor so then yeah all of a sudden I got in I got in in Ireland and I actually didn't even really wait for my results from Canada I just actually went yeah yeah so I I kind of had just sort of decided like can I actually afford to do this and which you know it's really expensive 
And I randomly, at that point, I had started doing forest fire, our smoke jumping. And um, one of the guys that I worked with said, oh, yeah, my friend did the exact same thing. And she ended up getting this loan from Royal Bank. And as a professional student, you can get a $30,000 per year loan. And luckily, we had, Mike and I had bought a condo in Calgary. So it was only really like the leverage of my condo and then that I could even afford to do that. Because, yeah. you know, otherwise it wouldn't even have been... Like, if I had tried to get in right out of Queens, I would have never been able to afford yeah. to go. Never. Yeah. So it just life kind of all played into... Unfortunately, just, it just happened to all work out. And so, yeah, I, I ended up getting in and I talked to Mike about it. And, you know, he was, wasn't exactly thrilled that I was going to be moving away for four years. But then, yeah, I decided that, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. And uh, it was a really good experience. And ex- yeah, and then Mike did come visit, but then I think it was basically my first few months in Ireland that Mike got on with Ottawa Fire. Okay. So then, then his visits were a little less frequent than we would have liked. And I mean, it's not cheap to fly across the Atlantic anyway, but yeah, yeah but we made it through and Ireland was, Ireland's a super, super, super cool place. Like you can't, it's, it's just living there is so different. Like there's no discrimination. Like pub life is pub life. You know, everyone goes to the pub. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, 95, you could be, you know, 10. I mean, pubs are very <laughs> like, you know, every, it's really casual and lots of people go and the Irish just have a great sense of humor, right? And they're, they're really laid back and easygoing. And, so yeah. where is Limerick? Is it northern? Limerick basically center, basically Sorry. center of the island. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, center, yeah, center south basically. Yeah, if you had to pick. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it's a neat place. <laughs> if you look it up on online, it's called Stab City, but it, it really is not. There is a few, there's some travelers there. So there's some groups of people that have never really settled. They still kind of live in like caravans and stuff. And uh, But they, I mean, they're usually quite friendly. It's just more that they're. What do they call those people on Snatch? Pikeys? Pikers? <laughs> 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 something like that yeah so i mean it's a different lifestyle for them obviously their quality of life is different their education is different but um i never had any issues in limerick it was it yeah. was a cool place and it was a it was a good place to be the, the i mean the campus is gorgeous the shannon the river shannon runs right through it obviously okay. i played rugby there they have a big beautiful rec center because actually all the local ma- like men seem like munster and all those guys come and train at the University of Limerick. So, you know, we we would hear when when certain people were, you know, coming in some of the, like, because the Irish team would actually come play. Like, um, so we'd know when they were on campus and everyone make excuse to go to the gym and and work out. So it was cool. Yeah, beautiful facility and really nice place. I didn't spend a ton of time there because basically it's only your two years of of class stuff. And then after that, you're off doing other things. So then I was, you know, I I was in Clonmel for a lot of it, um, which is a bit more south then Limerick's still kind of so uh, just above Tipperary, basically Waterford area, and then um, I was in Ballinasloe for a little bit, um, which is sort of closer to Cork, and then I was in Port Leash for my psych. So I got to travel around a lot, and then my little brother came to visit um, with with my best friend and uh, his a good friend of his, and we just packed up and drove around. So we got to see a lot of uh, a lot of the island, and then of course it's um, pretty close to a lot of other cool places. So I went to Rome yeah. when I had a bit of time, did some other traveling, and then. Um, just to sort of use up my little bits of time I had in the summer, I ended up doing uh, some work or some work, a bit of a elective um, observership in India and in New Delhi. And then there was a tropical medicine course uh, in Indonesia, oh. in Yogyakarta, which was really cool. And they had set up a fantastic program. It's mostly done by the medical students, but you actually went and lived with one of the medical students. So I ended up living with this like 17-year-old girl from Indonesia who didn't speak barely any English and um, lived with her and her parents who kind of lived sort of in the mountains and drove in on the back of her scooter every morning for about an hour to get back to the university so yeah so it's good I saw my life flash before my eyes a few times yeah how, how long were you there for 
Uh, I was in India for, I think, about three weeks, three to four weeks, and it was hot. Uh, I don't think I slept for the whole time I was there. And then I was in Indonesia for about another three. And then I had a few days extra, like I kind of planned that I'd have a few more days before I had to be back. I think we had eight weeks off in total that summer. It was between my second and third year. And then I I actually went to um, a few of the islands there, so the Gili Islands, like Gili Trawangan. So I I ended up flying to Lombok. Everyone else was going to Bali or okay. yeah, fancy place. I'm yeah, like, yeah, ah, yeah. I don't really want to go to Bali. It's kind of touristy and whatever. I'm not that I. I mean, I'm sure it's a cool place to be, but I. So I ended up taking a flight to Lombok, which is a really cool little island, and then a speedboat um, to oh, Gili Trawangan. So there's three Gili Islands: uh, Gili Mino, Gili Air, and Gili Trawangan. And it's the third one out, and it's it was really beautiful. And I did some diving there, which was pretty fantastic yeah yeah that's yeah cool. it was neat i will definitely go back there definitely go back there because you you spend like 50 bucks a night and you stay in this really cool little cabin with like an outdoor shower and then you can go out for like sushi on this little island in the middle of nowhere. like like or there they had like um, pizza like a big stone oven pizza place and they had like sushi and then i remember it was um ramadan so you you weren't allowed to like do certain things in front of the locals because they were obviously fasting for Ramadan and they weren't allowed to have music or make noise. So I went to this bar like or just to hang out to go get something to eat and everyone had headphones on. Actually, it was near it was the time of the Olympics okay. um, that were in London. So I met a couple, some cool people from London and they were they were talking about the Olympics and how there's lots of traffic and security and stuff. And uh, anyway, and then I see all these people dancing around with headphones on and I was like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, it's Ramadan. So you, if you want to get on the dance floor, you got to get these headphones. And then of course, everyone's <laughs> listening to music. So all these people are dancing on the dance floor. Of course, we're all just sitting there like dead silence, right? Well, besides us chatting. But, and then of course they had sold out of headphones. So you oh, couldn't, uh, yeah, but it was, it was, it was neat. It was a really, it was a really neat place. Yeah. And then I ended up going back to, to Ireland after that and to finish up and yeah, and I did lots of traveling back and forth here to yeah. kind of get ready to come back, hopefully come back to here to practice. So then I ended up doing some work, uh, some shadowing in, in Hawkesbury Hospital and then okay. Alexandria Hospital as well. And yeah. they were good to me. They gave me a bursary and stuff and let me follow them around in the emergency department and learn some things. And it was good. It was really good. Actually, Haw- like, Hawkesbury was great. I ended up uh, suturing and doing a bunch of things that I wasn't even trained in. <laughs> trained to do? Yeah. yeah, yeah. The guy come in that had a gr- dropped a grinder on his wrist in a bunch of spots and I was with a resident that day and she said, well, you know, see one, do one, teach one. So she did a couple of stitches and yeah. she's like, okay, go ahead. And I said to the guy, I'm like, I've never even seen stitches before. And he's like, yeah, that's okay. Go to it. I don't care. And I'm like, all right. So I ended up doing a bunch of stitches and stuff and that was good. Cool. Uh, I had mm-hmm. a similar experience at Hawkesbury. The uh, Ryan Cunning hit me in the face with a slap shot Ouch. and split my lip open. And uh, so I went to Hawkesbury and the doctor looked at me. He's like, I'm going to go get, I can't remember who who, who it was, <laughs> but it was, it was this old lady. <laughs> she comes in and I guess she was the best sewer in the in oh. thing. It was a nurse. Oh, so yeah. she, oh, sew- really? she sewed me up. Uh, wow. put the stitches in and, um, yeah, I don't have a scar or anything. So I guess she did a, she must have done a good job. Yeah. yeah Cause the lip good. is kind of a, you know, you want to make sure everything lines back up again. Right. Yeah. So especially if it crosses what we call the vermilion border, um, you want that to line up. Otherwise you'll see it like a, yeah, kind yeah. of a jagged edge on the lip. So yeah, good. Yeah, no, she did a good job. And uh, I was, I was happy that the doctor, uh, let someone else do it. <laughs> stood aside and let the nurse take it. <laughs> well, that's, you know, a mark of a good physician is to know when to say I need to go ask someone yeah. else or I should go ask someone else. That's um, important. I think we, we skipped over the uh, the smoke jumping or the firefighting. Uh, how did you yeah. get into that? Uh, yeah, that um, kind of random, actually. So, you know, when Mike came back with me, I ended up, you know, I kind of had my plan set out that I wanted to get into medical school. And, you know, he just had come here from Holland, right? And his background was in hotel management, actually, but then had 
been doing dive master stuff and you know we're not really on the ocean anymore yeah. so so he uh, and he didn't even have his permanent residency yet because that takes forever um and we had jumped through a lot of hoops we'd started the process well before we left grand turk but we were still sort of waiting so anyway so he was sort of looking at doing a few odd jobs here and there and um getting a little frustrated and then that time things were really taking off in the oil sands so you know he was thinking about oh maybe i'll go work on the rig and now, if you met my husband, he would not fit in on the rig. It's just not, it would not be his style. So he sort of was picking up on that pretty quick. And we were sort of heading in that direction. He'd done a bunch of courses. And then I remember just kind of, you know, feeling bad for him. Like it's, Calgary's a hard place to find your, where you fit in. Okay. Uh, it's, I have a really good friend out there and she's probably one of the sweetest people I've ever met. And she says at best, I think Calgary is troubled. It's just a city where people are really transient. There's always stuff, you know, moving. It's hard to make good friends. And so he was having a hard time with that. And so I just found something in the paper that said, you know, something about, uh, you know, smoke jumping, like forest fire, hell attack um, with the um, Department of, of Resources in Alberta. And I was like, well, this sounds like a cool job. Like, I'm sure this would kind of fit in. It's kind of teamwork. You work in a crew. And Mike's like, no, it's like, I'm not digging trenches or whatever, because that's what they do in the States, right? They dig a lot of trenches basically okay it's like yeah i don't want to do that i'm like i'm sure there's more to it like why don't you just go try it if you don't like it pull the shoot no big deal like go try it and if you don't like it, come home like, yeah it's not a big deal so anyway so he went through all the hoops and he got in he just sort of lucky like i really clicked with him and anyway so mike got in but of course he got in in peace river so peace river is uh northwest of where we are about 10 hours such oh geez it's probably the furthest away he could have got from calgary <laughs> and i was like i'm like all right well i did say go so go and uh, it was about a week before he was gonna go and he's like you know what i'm just not gonna go like that's too far um you know it's not, i'm not gonna go and i wasn't in calgary that long and it's a lonely place and you don't know a lot of people and i'm like you know what it's fine just just go and try it and we'll see how it works out and anyway of course he loved it absolutely loved it they were crew they were in a big um 212 so they were crews of eight i believe and so it was big crews in like and they, and they just you know you're it's kind of your family for the summer and so mike really loved that and really kind of clicked in there and did really well and so he ended up staying on i want to say for four or five summers stayed with peace loyal to peace till the end never left and so after his first year of doing it i think i just i kind of liked the idea of it and i wanted to ride around in a helicopter i thought that would be cool and even though i do get air sick sometimes in planes so I'm <laughs> like maybe, and i get seasick and i get car sick and like so i was like oh i'll give it a try and of course mike told me all about you know like the mark three and like so i knew it pumps or there's a photo pump and i knew about all the gear and the halligans and and the hose and, the, and i knew everything about hovering and dropping from the helicopter i'd, I'd gotten the rundown and i knew yeah. all the things you you weren't supposed to do if you dropped out of the helicopter and you left the door open you owed everybody a case of beer oh. right and like, <laughs> I, I knew all the rules or if you didn't put your seatbelt because you're supposed to get out and put your seatbelt up back behind you if you didn't do all these things you you owed beer it's always beer anyway so i knew kind of all these things so i figured you know what i'll try it um why not pretty much the hardest thing to pass is the physical okay so they made you do i want to say I could be wrong now. It's been a while. Uh, 25 upright rows with, I want to say, 45 or 50 pounds, which, you know, for a female, is it's a good amount. Yeah, I think it's 50 pounds. And you had to do at least 25. And in a certain, like, to a metrodome or whatever it's called. Okay. So, like, all right, whatever. I was kind of training at the time anyway. Uh, so, I figured, well, I'll give it a shot. And so, yeah, I went for my interview and the guy asked me all these questions and I kind of knew the answers. And he's like, well, how do you know all these answers? And I was like, well, I know a few people that do forest fire. He's like, okay, where do you want to go? And I said, Peace River. He's like, okay. It's like, there's a lot of skag there. Like there's a lot of swamp. I was like, yeah, I know. Anyway. So, um, he's like, how about Lac La Biche? I'm like, where the hell is that? Like, <laughs> um, and you can't say no in the interview, yeah. really, right? You come for this job and you know, you could go to any of the, the zones. So I was like, all right, sure. Lac La Biche. So anyway, Lac La Biche is pretty much, it's, it's next to Fort Mac. 
So it's, it's almost straight north of Calgary, like closer to the border. So it's like right near the weapons range or whatever. So I was like, sure, yeah, I'll give it a try. So it's a very like it's um, mostly like Aboriginal community there. And uh, but on a big, cool beaver, beaver lake. So there's a big lake there and uh, some really cool guys. So I, I went and tried it. Why not? Managed to pass fitness tests and then you go for training. Uh, you go to basically Hinton, Alberta, and you have to go through this training where basically they, you know, the usual. They get you up at the crack of dawn and make you run all over the place and do all this, you know, crazy training and then walk through the swamp and blah, blah, and all this stuff. And then some, somehow I managed to get, and I swear I wasn't doing anything bad, but I managed to get mono in the middle of my week of training, two weeks. Oh, okay. So I must have got it from like not properly washed, like you're, in a, you're eating in the cafeteria, yeah. right? So it was a hell of, I think it was like two weeks or it felt like two weeks at least. Anyway, so I started getting re- really sick in the, in the middle of the, all my training and stuff. So anyway, so I actually had to end up going to the hospital and they uh, ended up taking a look. Someone took a look at my throat and said, oh, you have tonsillitis. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. And they gave me penicillin. And then I got the very classic penicillin rash because I didn't actually have tonsillitis. I had mono. So they're very classic thing in medicine where you give them penicillin and they break, you break it in this crazy rash, which I know now. Of course, I didn't know then. Okay. Yeah. So then I go through all this and I'm really, really sick and I didn't get much better. And then I get shipped off to Beaver Lake and I have to redo my fitness test and I'm trying to do it with, with mono. And it was just like, and so you have to drag this hose. So you go on a 45 minute pack walk. So you have a 45 pound pack on your back with your weight belt and you have to do this walk. And I want to say it's eight kilometers um, in 45 minutes or something. And so I had to do that. And then you come back and do your upright rows. And then you have to grab a charged toes and drag it out and back. It's like eight or 10 times. And then you got to drag a sled that's basically a Mark three, and you got to drag that out and back. And then I think you got to pick up a hose bag again, which is about 45 pounds and run it out and back twice or something. So I managed to survive that. Well, <laughs> mono, no, no, it wasn't no. pretty. It didn't look very good. Uh, but then, I, so I ended up doing that. And I ended up getting picked for a crew. Then after all that, they sort of pick. And I ended up getting picked to a crew, sim- I think simply, because I, my pack weight with all your gear and everything is your pack weight was like 40 pounds, 140 pounds. And my crew, the rest of my crew were heavy guys. Okay. So you're supposed to make a cutoff, right? So you're, I can't remember what it is exactly because I never really had to worry, but I think you're not, you can't be over 200 pounds with your pack weight and everything. And I definitely had crew members that were over that. Yeah. So you averaged it out. So, so basically they could do I, got picked, yeah. <laughs> I got picked pretty early because my pack weight was low and we typically, we were crews of four. Uh, whereas, like I said, Mike was eight because they had two 12s. We had long rangers, mostly in A-stars, which quite a bit smaller helicopters. So our pack weight had to be exact. Yeah. We They actually, the year before, I believe, in Lac La Biche, had had a crash oh. because they were at altitude and they were over their weight because you have to fin- fill in a cargo manifest every time you take off. And they were actually overweight and they went to take off and they crashed. Oh, okay. And I think four people died. So they're oh. very, obviously, yeah. fairly enough, very particular. And so, yeah, so I was on that crew, I think, mostly because I was light. And, but it was good. It was good. We had, we had a good amount of fires. We didn't have a lot of skag like Mike. They were pretty much always dropped in swamp. We didn't have that much, uh, lots and lots of mosquitoes though. Everybody does, but, but some cool fires, if you can say fire. So how do you, how how do you fight a fire, uh, forest fire? Is it like cutting down trees and creating like a a, a line or? A mix of everything. Yeah, absolutely. So usually in the A stars, they carry a bucket and they have a good size bucket. So it really all depends where the fire is. So there are towers up kind of strategically placed towers. And those people live in those towers all summer and their job is to go up during peak hours. So they have all kinds of indices. You get an indice report every morning and the indices will tell you what your risk of a fire is, right? So you have a duff score, which basically will tell you how dry the ground is. 
and the Duff score starts from the very beginning of the season. So if you've had a nice wet winter and like a lot of rain and a good wet spring, your Duff will be really low basically. And that way fires are hard to start. It's hard okay. to start when the ground is wet. Yeah. As we know with climate change, it's getting drier and drier. So every season, the Duff score actually from the beginning is trying to go up. So if your Duff score is high enough and then the humidity and the weather and a few other indices, if they will actually cross each other. You pretty much know if you get a lightning strike or if someone drops a match in the woods or if you have a unfortunate four-wheeler go by without um because basically there's something that stops sparks coming off their exhaust Spark arrestor, exactly yeah. yeah so if you have that happen there's going to be a fire and oh, it's going to take off yeah. yeah and then it just depends where it is as to what's going to burn so if it's you know if it drops in some pine you probably have a bit of time uh if it drops in some drier trees or whatever depending on what what's there yeah it can take off a lot quicker okay. so yeah so these people are in towers are looking for smokes Smokes are more or less likely to happen at certain times based on the indices. So if the indices are high, you are parked somewhere out there closer to the tower. So you always have places that you day base. So they'll send you out for the day and you basically sit out there and you wait and you wait for a smoke call. Okay. And then because they paid a lot for that machine and probably for you guys, they don't really want you just sitting around doing nothing. So they will give you coordinates. So every day or a couple times a day, uh, they will make you go up in the air and then basically go to these coordinates, which you know usually are lakes, but, and you'd go out and you basically do a recce and you do a recce every couple of hours. And then, so you're also looking for smokes. Okay. Yeah. So then either you, if you find a smoke, then you start to action it and if, or otherwise you get sent to one. And then when you get there, basically you start to do an aerial surveillance. So everybody has a crew leader. So the crew leader in our group would start to call in a, a whiteboard and they'd call in, okay, this is how big it looks from the air, you know, Hector wise, this is, you know, kind of what I, I see for trees and what I think the fuel sources are going to be. This is what the wind is doing. You know, this is what we need on the ground. And then basically you get dropped. Um, so you jump out or if, if there's a place to land, some we do land, uh, you drop out and you take whatever gear you think you need at the time or what you can carry. So if you're dropped far from the fire, um, or if you have to land far from the fire, depending, you know, what's happening, then you're probably not bringing all your crap because the mercury's heavy and all your hose is heavy. And it just depends if there's a water source nearby. Okay. So if you can run a water source, like if you've got a water source, then you're good. Yeah. Um, if not, then sometimes you have to use your helicopter. So yeah, so basically you get there. If there's trees in the way, you drop them into the fire and clear a thing. And then... <laughs> And then, yeah, from there, it just depends. So then usually the, your crew leader will go survey. He'll, he'll take a recce around or she'll take a recce around and see what else needs to be done. And then, yeah, you start actioning the fire from there. So if it's really, really hot, you drop everything in and you sort of wait. And then usually you get your helicopter to come back and bucket on it. Cool. And you try not to be in the way when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is that a good stepping stone for people trying to get into uh, the fire departments around here? I know a lot of a lot of kids want to be firefighters, and then they yeah. they go off and they don't get into Ottawa, they don't get into Cornwall, and they take the, the course at Algonquin, and then yeah. they're discouraged. And um, was that how Mike got in uh, for Ottawa? Or yeah, partly. Like Mike seems to be just kind of a lucky guy. Sometimes it is really really hard to get into fire. I'd say it's almost as hard, if not harder, than getting into med school. Yeah. So Mike did do there's a professional firefighting course so while mike was doing force fire he did go to somewhere in alberta i can't remember exactly where he stayed with some good friends of ours actually that we met while we were in the caribbean two police officers and he did his professional firefighting course so i think that was very helpful they they definitely looked highly upon that it was an expensive course and pretty intense but that was helpful but certainly the the forest fire seemed to be a big drawing card for them yeah. because it's just not something that you know firefighters here um, are really, you know, it, it's just a forest fire seems to be a little bit intimidating for a lot of people. Yeah. 
So there was that, but then there's always all the other pieces, right? So Mike came back here. My mom, of course, my mom was very instrumental. <laughs> she basically kicked his ass up to the volunteer fire hall and said, you know, go see those guys, have a chat, you know, do some of their training with them. Jim Cowan was like, here, take my gear. I'm okay to step out. Like, yeah. it was really great. So he met those guys and they were really good to him. And he only popped up there for a few times. And of course, Peter just to even have Peter's name in there. And Peter was good in kind of giving him some advice here and there. So in his first interview, uh, the girl was actually the niece of Jim Cowan. Oh, okay. So that didn't come up in conversation until yeah. the very end. So basically, you know, he did his initial interview, which is the hardest one. And at the very end, you know, he was just sort of chatting and, you know, Peter's name came up and then Jim Cowan. And then, of course, that always just helps just yeah. having familiar. So and, and she was a really cool girl. So she sort of just into that and that got him to the next step um and but i mean i think i'm sure the forest fire piece definitely played yeah. a role in that and that just shows that you know you're willing to work hard you can physically carry the gear yeah uh, you know how to take orders because you're always following your crew leader and then you sort of know the hierarchy of command which obviously is very prevalent in the fire hall so you're yeah. you know you're used to all that so absolutely i'd recommend it plus it's just it's a great summer job i mean it's a long long hours but it's for a short period of time the crews are really good uh you know there's always risk but really you're quite safe i mean it's trees burning so they're never really putting you at risk yeah if an extra yeah. tree burns well it's unfortunate but that's <laughs> not really and then you go on some really cool exports like mike's been to the yukon a couple times i believe he's been to the northwest territories i got i went to bc because bc's always got lots and lots of fires and then i think now you sometimes even get sent to the states if you want to yeah and i know ontario because they don't depends on the season i guess don't always have as many fires they tend to go on more exports so oh, cool. if you're doing a little less in your province then usually you're you're primed to go out of your province so yeah i'd say it's, it's a great it's a great job is there an age uh, range that they start looking at people for oh, or like i don't know i know there's always lots of young young guys like 18 years old i'd they, say oh yeah oh, yeah yeah, yeah. i don't think i don't think that i mean i'm sure under 16 they don't take obviously but um you need to have your license because you have to drive the truck yeah so, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there's nothing like an age cut off, but obviously they want you to have a bit of experience. So I'd say around 18. Yeah. A lot of the really? guys were pretty young. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. But as long as you, like I said, you have to pass the physical and then obviously the interviews are a little bit intense, but you do your research and yeah. just like any interview. Yeah. It's a, it's a good job. I yeah. actually would have continued doing it if I could have, if it would have lined up with my medical school summers. Yeah. Yeah. I would have kept going because oh. Rocky, I moved to Rocky after and, you know, spending your days flying over the mountains is, uh. It's, it's all right. We're yeah. at Abraham Lake a lot. Pretty beautiful places. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned Africa earlier was somewhere you wanted to go. And yeah. I think you ended up going there at one I point. I did. <laughs> yeah, I did eventually. I kind of, it's interesting. Once you get into the international development world, uh, there's a whole world out there. And that's all people do. And they kind of go from international work to international work. And I... It's it's a it's really neat. You meet all these people, and they're, that's all you know. They're getting sucked into that, and they don't necessarily have families or partners or kids, and this is their life. And so once you do one, you kind of get all these emails about other ones, and like I said, you're following other people that you've worked with. And so when I finished in in the Caribbean, and I I guess I had a fairly good review, then my name kind of got put forward to other organizations, and I got an email from the Right to Play. All right. And what's Right to Play? Uh, so the Right to Play is a nonprofit organization, and it was actually started by a Norwegian speed skater, so Johan von Kloss. And he actually started it many, many moons ago um, when he was an Olympic athlete. And the idea then at that point we didn't have any educational piece to it. It was just donating sports equipment. So basically collecting used sports equipment and then bringing it to places in Africa or places in need to introduce kids to sport and giving them some vehicle to do that. And that's good and it was great yeah i mean obviously kids were happy to have that stuff but then there wasn't any instruction and you know lots of kids in africa don't know what a hockey skate is or you know or 
a stick or a puck or, you know, they haven't seen you know, some of the, the, the equipment. They just don't know what to do with it. So then over time, it evolved um, as it got bigger and got more funding. And a lot of the funding comes from Europe, like Europe, um, like Norway and Denmark. Those guys are fantastic for funding all this development. So they started getting big grants from them and started kind of spreading their wings. And then they put an educational piece to it. So most people have sort of heard about Kicking Aids Out. So Kicking Aids Out was a soccer program that got started by them. And that was basically introducing soccer or football, depending yeah. on who you are. And because uh, that's very, very popular there. And then putting a, a, an education piece with that. So teaching kids about AIDS, teaching them how it's transmitted, you know, how to be careful, you know, obviously within their realm of what they can do there. And then they started adding other educational modules. And the one that was sort of associated with our, my role in going down there as a project manager was um, red ball child play. And so basically they had all these colors and with these colors, they associated different messages. So like they had a black ball and that was more about your body and they had a green ball and that was messages of wellness and health. They had a red ball, which is about mind. And so they had all these activities. So tons and tons of really cool games and you would go and the idea was to actually to train facilitators or coaches. So people, you know, young people and they're, you know, late teens, twenties, whatever you could find really. And you would teach them through a translator, obviously, because my area in Soroti, Uganda, they spoke a Tesso. So you'd go through a translator and you would teach them these games and then the education piece to go with it and why you were doing the game. Okay. And then they would go back to their camps because most of the people that I was working with were in internally displaced persons camps. So they weren't actually living really in towns or anything. They had been pushed down by the fighting from the Karamajong on the borders. And they'd been in these, these camps, basically, these displaced camps for 20 plus years and they'd go back to their own little kind of area, their village, and they would teach the kids. And then, of course, like anything we, we do in North America, we had to then, you know, prove what we were doing. So then you had to go to the camp and basically count heads and how many kids were involved. And then it was, there was a lot of, like, basically counting going involved to show the funders that, you know, their money was going somewhere and you were teaching these kids. And then you would sit down and they'd have a debriefing about the game. So, okay. you know, like, like concentration, we used to always play at birthday parties when we were a kid. I don't know if you remember that game, concentration, where you uh, slap your knees and then clap your hands and you have to say your number and then the next person's number and then they have to say their number and the next person's number if they screw up, you're out. Okay. So anyway, they're kind of games like that, like different premises. And then there's ones that you just kind of, like Simon says, follow the leader. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a, lots of different kind of games. But anyway, so you would sit down and depending on what the game was, you would talk about what was important in that game. You know, teamwork or concentration or, you know, mindfulness or whatever. And why would that be important in school if they were lucky enough to go to school or just in life in general? Why were those things important? Why yeah. was it important to pay attention and to concentrate and work with um, other people? And so that was the whole premise was to teach these kids life lessons through sports. So they got, you know, the pleasure of playing the sport. And then, and there was a certain, you know, you donated a certain amount of equipment, which typically usually did disappear over time or okay. become in disrepair. But so then, yeah, so the, I, I spent a good four or five months setting up that program. And then eventually the idea was to make it sustainable and hand it over to the community. Unfortunately for me, or, I mean, it was a, it was a great experience, but I was at a point in, in the right to play where they were trying to make all of their programs based by, um, like they wanted it completely based by the village, so taken over by the village. Okay. So in my program, I did set it up, but within a, you know six months or so, they handed it over to the community, which is a little bit premature for that particular program. Yeah. So it, it, I think it is still going on, but with probably a little bit more growing pains than some of the longer-standing programs. So if somebody wanted to get into international uh, jobs like like this, uh, where would they go to look? Uh, do you well, know? I would say 
typically for international work, they want to see that you've done some, at least some pretty intensive travel, like not just your usual, like I went to Cuba or something like that. They want to see some dedication to travel or I guess some sort of probably education behind it. And that you've sort of, you've explored those options a bit more. So the reason why I think I, I had a bit more of a time, easier time getting in was I had also worked on the cruise ship right after I graduated from Queen. So that, that just proved that I was, I was able to be away from home for a while, yeah. be independent, kind of just branch out and, and be in a new environment and do okay. Yeah, so they don't invest in you and then you pull the plug. Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah, because lots of people get really homesick, right? Yeah. Like, so it was, they, they want to see some sort of evidence that you've at least traveled, I'd say, you know, for a month or two yeah. and that you've been out and done something. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a paid position, but like what I did, you know, my dive master in Hawaii, basically we packed up and we lived there for two months, right? And we basically just camped and lived wherever. So they kind of want to see that kind of, at least adventurous spirit that you're that you're okay to pick up and go yeah and you know probably some work i would say at least some project manager work so either you you know you've done camp counseling or something pretty simple you know everyone well a lot of us did vicky wilson's basketball camp or you know the enrichment camp at queens like they want to see that you've done some work with kids obviously that you've got some interest in that and that you've done some travel. So you start with those stepping stones. And like I said, once you get your first little job, like I said, you don't have to aim too too elaborate, too high, something that's interesting to you and has, you know, involved in whatever sport you might be interested in or education piece. And then once you're sort of in that realm or in that world, then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I had friends that were working with Medicine Sans Frontier. So I had like you know, doctor of the borders, like I had contacts sort of everywhere. So then that was actually why I got involved at the beginning, the first place is when I got into medicine, I wanted to do doctor of the borders. And so once you kind of get in, you have contacts in all these places. And I okay. had friends that have worked in various organizations or AMRAF or different things that are going on internationally. So yeah, once you get your foot in the door, then you, like I said, you could stay in that world forever if you okay. wanted to. Yeah. 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 Cool. So let's, uh, let's jump back, uh, or forward in time, I guess. So you finished school in uh, Ireland yeah. and then you came back here? Or? I did. Yeah, it was, it's tough. It's really tough, obviously doing, so when you study internationally for medicine, you become an international medical graduate. It doesn't really matter, or at least that's still the terminology for now. I think they've changed it a little bit, but basically this doesn't matter that you're a Canadian, you become part of this group of people coming back to the country. So, or coming to the country, I should say. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, you're from Africa or you're from the UK or you're from somewhere else, they treat you as if you've never basically been in Canada. So there's this whole idea that you don't know the Canadian culture or how the Canadian medical system works or whatever. So you become part of this group of international medical graduates, which was really interesting because clearly, you know, if you've grown up here, you, you know how it works. Yeah. yeah so it's a, it's a really big struggle. So there's only like a handful of, of spots across Canada actually for residency spots. It's really, really challenging. So I applied when I first graduated and I actually did not get a spot. Uh, I was looking specifically for emergency medicine, but also family. A lot of my colleagues went for other positions that didn't have as much competition, like psych or something like that. And then with the idea that they would transfer or stay, okay. um, I was not interested in doing five years of psych. Like that was not on my radar, just not for me personally. Yeah. And I had other people that did, you know, other physical therapy and stuff. So I basically figured I'd take my chances, continue to work and then reapply, which is what I did. So I ended up working at the Heart Institute actually, which was really good. Oh. So I kind of stayed, I got to be back with Mike in Ottawa, which was really nice. And I just spent the time working at the Heart Institute as a tech, actually. I saw Bobby Burton there one day when oh, she was with her. Yeah. I'm, I'm so going you, there next week. Oh, so. that's right. So, <laughs> yeah. so you always see familiar faces. So that was good. It was a little, um, little creepy being back like through the Civic. because so my brother had been in that really bad car accident. I hadn't been back there since. But anyway, yeah. so yeah, so I went back there and it was good enough to pay the bills. And I got to do some more Holter and ECG stuff. And, and then I applied the second time. So I did Kerms again and ended up doing a 
whole bunch of interviews and actually got a f- couple of different offers and um, almost went to La Ronde, Saskatchewan, but then I ended up going to, to Dow. So then I matched to Annapolis Royal, which is one of the first settlements in Canada. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful town, similar to Vankley Hill, but on the water. I'm okay. um, on the Bay of Fundy and spent my residency two years there in a small community, basically running, well, running, learning to run a small community hospital. Uh, what's the hospital again? Uh, Annapolis Royal. So the Annapolis yeah. Royal Community Center. Yeah. I think my uh, my mother-in-law actually uh, was a nurse there. No, you're kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, they were from... No, I got the wrong name. Turo? Oh, Turo. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where my mother-in-law is from. And uh, I remember you telling me that. Yeah. Yes. That's right. So, small world. <laughs> it is a small world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, really cool town. And I would have liked to stay there, actually. But um, because I had this, you know, because I had matched to a, a highly prized spot, I think there were 600 applicants, I think, for my one spot, uh, I had a return of service tied to that. So I had to be staying in the province for another three years. Okay. But Annapolis, unfortunately, wasn't considered one of the spots. So basically, they picked communities at, that were in need. And even though Annapolis did need more docs, they didn't make the cut. So then I had a few other options. Digby, which is right next door, was desperate for some doctors and a few other places. So a lot out in Cape Breton. So... Um, yeah, a few places sort of way, way up that way. And um, I end up settling on Tatamagush, which is where I ended up okay. going. And then I spent another, yeah, almost three years, full three full years oh, nice. in Tata. Yeah, which Tatamagush, very, another very cool community and sister hospital to Annapolis Royal. Oh, okay. So basically similar collaborative practice model, which there's not that many in Nova Scotia. And then in family docs running the emergency department and running their office and doing inpatients. Cool. Yeah, so it's good trial by fire, but it was yeah. good. Yeah, that's medicine. Yeah, so now you're back here. Now, thank yeah, thankfully after all of that, I'm happy to be home. So yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, you know, some things have changed and some things haven't. Yeah, and it was a struggle getting back here and actually finding a place to live and doing all that. And but and then of course there's lots of work. So I you know actually made the mistake of putting out the word that I was coming back and you know people needed work and my yeah my schedule's pretty much full before I even made it back here so I would have liked a little bit of time off because we were really busy in Tata and having you know only four docs run a hospital 24 7 is it's a lot yeah so I was feeling a little bit yeah a little bit burnt out uh, but anyways but now I'm back and there's obviously lots and lots of work to do yeah. and I've just started um, working at the emergency department at the Glengarry Memorial Hospital so yeah, so it's good. good. It's good. And a lot of the nurses still remember me. I had done some shadowing there, like I said, or some observerships uh, with Dr. Rosenblum when I, so back in whatever that was, 2012. And uh, the nurses remember me from being a student. So, oh, good. yeah. Yeah. And then some of the other faces have gone. Mrs. Brody obviously has retired. Yeah. Uh, but there's other familiar faces too. And it, it just feels like a good, you know, community hospital. It feels like coming home. Yes. And that's, that's a good feeling. So, what are your plans uh, going forward? Are you going to stick around at Glengarry? Are you going to yeah, open absolutely. Your own practice? Yeah. Or? <laughs> That is that is the question I get asked every 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 single day. Um, I was at a yoga class the other day, and I think I was in the class maybe five five seconds before someone asked me if I was going to be taking patients, which is which is the nature of just how it is. I don't blame people at all. Yeah. I, know, I know everyone's short, but um, private or being a primary uh, care physician, starting your own practice, it's it's really intensive. It's it's like having fifteen hundred children once you get your roster up, and you're on call all the time, pretty much. So I'm not looking to jump into that right away. I am thinking about getting back into that. Probably not a big, big practice. And like I said, I am taking over for someone's maternity leave in January. So that'll give me a sense of yeah. how it goes. Because everything's very different. In Nova Scotia, you're salaried, right? Here, it's all fee for service. It's not 
necessarily the way I like to practice. Okay. Uh, it means you really have to get people out the door yeah. every 15 minutes, even just to pay your overhead and your secretary and pay your bills, right? Oh, really? So I've actually had patients that are uh, colleagues that have actually practiced at a loss. Like actually had to pay to be there because, really? you know, just to get people out quick enough, right? And, and you know, times have changed. People expect a lot more than they used to, right? It's, um, and, and it's like, it's different now. There's so, so many comorbidities. Like the people that I see through the Emerge are really, really, really sick. Like nobody, you know, very few patients just have diabetes anymore. If they have diabetes, they also have heart disease. They also have COPD if they're a smoker. They also have, you know, high cholesterol. And so, I mean, people are really complicated and yeah. um, taking care of them is, is difficult. Um, so there's a, there's a lot more to it, I think, than people see. And especially when you're practicing fee for service, like there's so much time you don't get paid for. Yeah. And I have a 10 month old right now and yes. I'm really enjoying <laughs> Noah. And uh, I haven't had a lot of time to spend with him because... I was practicing all the right up until I was nine months pregnant. And then I only, you only get four months of um, parental leave from doctors Nova Scotia. So I was back to work at four months and thankfully Mike was able to take some time, um, some parental leave or paternal leave from the Ottawa fire hall. So they were, that was really good. They, they, I mean, his parental leave is quite a bit more than yeah. mine. So that helped, but I mean, you know, four months is pretty early Yes, uh, and we had a rough ride to start with. So I yeah. just kind of felt like I was just physically starting to feel a bit better then. And then I basically jumped right back into, you know, a 80 hour work week. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit leery of, of jumping in and I, and pretty much every physician I've spoke to here has said, can you take some of my, you know, my responsibility? I'm, I'm feeling a little burnt out. Can you take some of my responsibility? I'm feeling a little burnt out. So, and I think with COVID uh, that adds just a whole nother layer. And of course, you know, there's a scabies outbreak in Glengarry too. Yeah. So there's lots of other factors to think about. And, and Noah's only, like I said, 10 months. So after he's a year and he's got his live vaccines on board and a bit more immunity than I would consider maybe working a bit more. But Mike and I are both frontline workers right now. Yeah. Mike does all the medical, you know, the firefighters do all the medical calls. He's probably got as much exposure as I do. Yeah. We want to sort of keep things for Noah's sake, keep it sort of to a minimum for now. And like I said, we're, we don't have childcare here. You know, I have 13 nieces and nephews, or I guess Noah's lucky number 13. My mom has 12 nieces and nephews. um, And she's our only kind of grandparent that's in the area that, babysits so yeah. we sort of are you know you gotta share with the we, rest of the family we have to share that's right that's right and i just don't feel comfortable putting noah into daycare just at his age so there's always those things to think about too yeah yeah well, that's good well i mm. uh, wish you the best uh in your uh your business here your Thank practice you. and uh, I'm going to recruit you to coach uh, sports when you know is a little bit older okay the i think kill I sports club that. yeah you'll yeah. uh I'll be. I'll come a knocking uh, when the time comes. Very good. And I'm always looking for soccer coaches and basketball coaches okay. and, and everything else. So excellent. I was doing my best to oblige. All right. Very good. Well, thanks a lot for doing this, Lisa. Oh, you're welcome. Dave. It was All my right. pleasure. All right. Yeah. Have a good one. Thank you. You too.